great episode in store for you and today we're going to be really focusing on product launches, uh, channel specific strategies for them and how this brand transitioned its focus from AOV, average order value, to LTV, lifetime value. My guest today is Aaron Zaga, the Chief Marketing Officer at Newton Baby, who produced super safe sleep products for babies. Aaron's been at Newton Baby for about four years, managing a range of marketing channels for their DTC e-commerce business and their Amazon channel as well as being involved in the launch of new products to expand their range and improve that crucial lifetime value metric. Let's get Aaron on now. Hi, Aaron. Thanks for joining me today. Would you mind just introducing yourself quickly, a bit of your background and what you're up to today? Sure. Hi, well, Aaron Zaga. I am now the CMO of Newton Baby. We are the leading manufacturer of luxury crib mattresses. It's a completely different, unique product. Babies can actually breathe straight through the crib mattress. It's also the only washable crib mattress in the market. You can actually wash the inner core of the mattress, which is pretty key when you think about babies and the horrible, despicable things that they do through the night in diapers and leaky diapers. The company was founded about six years ago, almost seven years ago now, primarily D to C. That's our, and always has been kind of our key channel. But we do also sell through Amazon and Bye Bye Baby and Babyless, a couple other very specific retailers. Prior to this, I was head of international e-commerce for Teleflor, the international flower company. And the original kind of half of my career was actually in finance and bank. So did a bit of a pivot. I dabbled in a bunch of startups and those kind of wound their way into tech and e-commerce. And that's how I ended up here. Awesome. So what's uh, what's been contributing to growth at Newton Baby these last, maybe these last 12 months? Yeah. So unfortunately, people have not been fornicating nearly enough lately. So sadly, it is not... Uh, wild excessive behavior that results in pregnancies. There's actually a bit of a baby bust since COVID. So we've really relied historically on scaling channels, really just the classic D2C playbook, figure out what channels work, scale as much as possible, find a new channel, scale it as much as possible. We do have a pretty niche audience given that there are only 3 million pregnant women or so in the, in the country at any given time. And those are our only real potential customers. So besides the crib mattresses, we also shall sell other baby sleep related things, mattress pads, sheets, swaddles, things like that. But making sure that we get to that pregnant woman is it. That's the whole story. And wherever they start thinking about putting together either their baby registry or their nursery, like that's our, our entire customer set and our only chance at hitting the customer. So it's a niche audience at a specific point in time. And figuring out how to get in front of all of them has been the challenge of the last five or six years. At this point, and through COVID, COVID, we were probably a bit of a net beneficiary since we were primarily D2C and Amazon. And so we were able to lean in and grow faster in COVID. And we're fortunate that way, despite some supply chain hiccups and everything else. But so we really scaled and we scaled every channel we could. We tested all the channels we hadn't tested. At this point, we are currently running or have tested pretty much every e-commerce channel there is, um, except for billboards. And we haven't done linear TV yet either. Yeah. But otherwise, we're getting in front of pretty much all 3 million of those pregnant women at any point in time. And so that's kind of one of the reasons going forward, that kind of scaling isn't necessarily going to be where our growth comes from. I do still want to try linear TV. I'm not sure we have the right product set for it at this point in time. But new products going forward are going to be kind of key to our growth. And so that's really the future of the company as we do sort of capitalize on the trust that we've built with families and new families 
and make sure that we're rolling out new innovative products that build on the success of the mattresses and other sleep products. Yeah. Just touching on the channels, have there been any surprise channels? Any that you thought, well, we'll test it because we kind of have to, but maybe you weren't expecting too much from it and it's just, it's performed really well? Yeah, I didn't. So the obvious one that did well was Influencer. That was a no-brainer. Everyone's a mom blogger. It made all the sense in the world. I think the one that we've been most surprised by is TikTok. We leaned into TikTok pretty heavily starting starting really in the middle of COVID. So kind of called the summer of 2020. And we leaned into it only because I love it. Yeah. It was COVID. There was nothing else to do. I downloaded it. I forget why I downloaded it. And I fell completely in love with it. So much more positive and interesting of a social media channel than certainly Instagram at the time. And I was still really new. There were very few real e-commerce companies advertising on it. And I basically went to my team and said, hey, guys, who else loves TikTok as much as me and who wants to run this channel? And so our design person actually said, oh, I do. (laughs) And so I was like, great. Like as much about TikTok as anyone, if you use it, it's new. No one knows how to do it. There's no formula here yet. So we start kind of just jumping in. And what we've seen is that over the past year and a half, uh, we've been able to scale it pretty well and are still scaling it quite a bit. And part of that's because it's cheaper than the other channels that are the more traditional D2C, Instagram, Facebook, Pinterest. But also, I just didn't know everyone thinks of TikTok, or at least did, as a teenager channel. And given how much I loved it and my friends loved it, I knew that wasn't exactly true. But but at this point, we we still see a lot of blue sky for scaling TikTok. Yeah. And my understanding is the fastest growing demographics are those over 30. So there's plenty of room there. And that, that was a bit of a surprise that we are seeing really good, really kind of direct response feedback on, on TikTok ads and organic content too. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, I imagine... The reason people thought TikTok was for teens and just generally younger people is because those are the people you see on it in the content yeah. a lot of the time, right? Yeah. That doesn't mean that no one else is watching it. If it's yeah, yeah, interesting yeah. content, if it's funny content, anyone can watch it. You don't have to be that same age bracket. That's a great point. I never even thought about it, but you're right. Like some of the first things that I watched were teenagers doing practical jokes on each other. Yeah, it's a valid point. And so are you, are you just producing all that content in-house? Or do you, do you work with people? So we do some in-house, like a couple of people on my social team will just shoot videos every once in a while and do voiceovers, whatever else. But that's not, it's a hard, it's a hard channel for us content wise because crib mattresses aren't awesome on TikTok. Like they don't <laughs> dance, they don't jump around. We've done some practical joke ones, but they're a little tough to pull off. So we do rely quite a bit on influencers and on, cre- on the TikTok creator marketplace. Yeah. And so that that's probably the majority of our focus. Yeah. All right. Cool. So um, yeah, back onto the, the product launches. Because obviously, I suppose the, the mattress is a product that you buy once. Yeah. And I suppose maybe once per baby. I haven't had kids, so I wouldn't know the price. So typically, historically, that's true. Our mattress, because it's completely washable, is very reusable. Yeah. You can completely sanitize the whole thing for your next kid and the one after that and one after that. And it doesn't sag. So, but yeah, I mean, we're really a one-time purchase and a good chunk of the baby industry in terms of the more expensive durable goods all are. It's either bought by yourself before you have a kid or bought on your registry, but you put it on the registry. So the decision maker is that first time mom and it's a one-time purchase. Diapers are obviously a little different, but, yeah. but in terms of the durable goods, it's a, it, it's, it's a, and it's 
As a result, we always focused on AOV. How do we increase AOV? Do we offer a higher end waterproof version? Yes. Do we offer sheets? Yes. But all of those things are bought at the same time when that person is basically decorating their nursery, for example, is traditional when these things happen, which is early on in pregnancy. And we're kind of, we can still easily continue to increase AOV by launching cribs, for example. And we have a co-branded crib out in market right now that we did with another brand. But certainly the goal is to increase and capitalize on the customer that we've acquired by selling them more things down the line as well. And so we really, in terms of our product roadmap, are now focusing more on LTV and things that we can sell three months after, six months after, two years after we acquire that initial pregnant woman as a customer. Yeah. Um, so the first thing that we're launching is actually pet beds, which isn't the most linear thing for a baby company, except for the fact that people often do adopt the dog to give it a trial run before they adopt a child or give birth to one. So the overlap between dog owner and people with babies is pretty high. But also the product itself lends itself super well to a pet bed because of that. We're going to use the same, it's literally the same construction as a crib mattress where the core is completely breathable, which dogs love because it's much better at temperature regulate, regulating. Dogs hate super hot surfaces. And also that core is completely washable. So you can take the core out and wash it in the shower, hose it off outside and keep it a lot more hygienic, especially if the dog sheds a lot or whatever else. So yeah, Yeah. pet beds are the next one. And we've acquired these customers. It's a great new item to sell, at least to those who have a dog, which again, pretty high overlap. Yeah, my dog sheds a lot. It's been nonstop the last six months. I don't know. don't know what's happening. (laughs) Yeah. But yeah, uh, babies, they're not the cleanest. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's interesting, right? So yeah, like you said, you can have like a waterproof bed or something, or you can come up with different versions of the mattress, which just add a little bit more, more cost to it, bump up that average order value, but it's still that lifetime piece you want, right? You want people coming back. Yeah. In, instead of adding $20 to their order and that's their lifetime value, you want them coming back a second time sometime later and doubling their lifetime value with a, with that second purchase, right? So that's where those additional and new products come in. Exactly. Um, how do you like? How do you identify new products? So I suppose that's a great question about the right the dog bed. That's a perfect example, right? How doesn't that doesn't feel like it was be something that just naturally comes to you, right? Where do we go next from a bed, a baby's mattress, a dog's mattress? So how, yeah, where did that come from? Yeah, our new product development is kind of simultaneously we do a top down and a bottom up so often people on the staff will say oh hey what about this awesome use for our proprietary mattress core or like i really have a need for this with my baby and then other times we'll kind of see do a bottoms up and say here's the baby products industry what's missing or what can we do better using our core company values of kind of science backed innovation Um, that's also relatively earth-friendly and parent-friendly. And we kind of ping between those two things. But initially, there's an idea. And then before even flushing it out any more whatsoever, we kind of do the bottom-up and look at the market for that category of products. And we do a lot of research, both from a marketing perspective, like Is there a product we can develop that's unique enough that will occupy some white space in this channel? But perhaps even more importantly, what could we make it for? What's the price point? Who am I marketing against? What are the CPMs? 
how am I targeting? And so there have been a number of products which are probably great products, but as a marketer, I don't know that I can outcompete whoever it is that's currently leading the market because those CPCs on Google PLAs are way too expensive or because there's already one company doing a ton of TV commercials that we're never going to outcompete because I don't want to raise $100 million to throw at TV ads. Not just a case of this is a product that's, uh, that is uh, useful in this space and people want to buy and is really popular. You still got to look at, does it make business sense to release this? Yeah. And this was informed a little bit by, by a kind of an ancillary product fail that we had. We launched weighted blankets for parents. And the thought was, again, kind of an, an LTV play. Let's launch something for parents. We already have their trust because of the baby goods. And we launched really nice, super high-end weighted blankets. The problem was during the time that it took us to make them and figure out all the whole manufacturing and supply chain, every single third-party Chinese warehouse and manufacturer started making them. And the AOV went from the initial gravity blanket $300 down to $30 at Walgreens. And it just completely destroyed the market. There was nothing to do there. It would, there were some well-funded high-end people at the top that were spending a ridiculous amount of money on marketing. And at the low end, it was completely cut off by the D2C Chinese manufacturers that were selling for 30 bucks on Amazon. And because we, we didn't, I mean, that one, it just took us a little too long to actually make and ship them here. And maybe we couldn't have seen it, but there was also not enough differentiation to go the premium route and say, this is what we're going to spend $10 million marketing because we really think it's a better product. So that's why we now make sure to do a full marketing canvas of the entire competitive field and make sure that whatever product, no matter how awesome it sounds, is actually marketable. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, on, on the weighted blankets, right? You've got hush blankets at the, the high end of the market, those kind of $300 blankets, and they've got a great brand, right? They've When people think about weighted blankets, generally think about Hush. I actually worked with a, a business who did bring in weighted blankets. Just before I started working with them, they brought in weighted, weighted blankets as a product around the, I think about 70 pound mark. So mm-hmm. probably about $100, which placed them in that, that kind of bracket of, you're nowhere near the premium ones. So you're obviously not as good as those, I suppose. But also, you're not as cheap as the ones I can get on Amazon. Yeah. So, what is why am I spending double the money on uh, on your weighted blanket when I could just get something from Amazon? So, yeah, I get, yeah, I understand what the problem you faced there. Yeah, that's yeah, and it's a tricky thing. I mean, you, you never know by the time design something, manufacture it, ship it, especially with shipping delays these days. Are you yeah. going to get to market before the market changes and new products? come out so quickly now and companies are able to iterate so quickly that by the time, unless you're in fast fashion and you have H&M supply chain and you can really turn around a new design and it is 25 days, yeah. uh, you have to make really sure that you're going to have a competitive advantage by the time you actually get the product in the market. Yeah. So yeah, once you have got that product, or at least you've decided on it, you want to go ahead with it. What goes into that launch? What's How do you approach that? So we're pretty much focused on soft launches for a number of reasons. Hey, we the, we don't really want to go crazy all in with a big splashy PR marketing campaign on a brand new product that hasn't been battle tested by customers. Even if we have like 10 samples that we've sampled out and gotten some feedback on, that's not good enough. And especially in a world where we sell on Amazon and reviews are everything, 
you really can't afford to botch a product line because the product isn't awesome. All of our products on Amazon are well over four stars, close to five stars. And that's kind of integral to our brand. And so every product that we're going to be launching, we're pretty much going to soft launch it on the site. Maybe an email announcement, if anything, get a couple hundred into people's hands, see how it goes. If the if it seems like our on-site reviews are in that four to five star range, then we'll make sure to start bumping up ad spend, start announcing the product more publicly, maybe do some press and scale spend in every channel. But until that's the case, I really want to make sure that this is an awesome product before doing that. And soft launch on site is super easy. It's basically free. There's no marketing dollars spent. We've gone out of our way to build a really strong, huge email list. So I don't even know that we would email our entire list on something like a pet bed. We might it depends what how much we our initial quantities and how much we have in stock is, but get that real world product feedback and then see if we need to iterate on the zipper or on some small aspect. Let's do that, get another couple of containers, see if that addresses all the concerns, and then go big. And I basically already have a battle-tested product that we know is going to work and is awesome before launching on Amazon, for example, because those star reviews are everything. Yeah. Yeah. It makes it interesting that uh, yeah, you say you don't even do the email launch really initially. So yeah, it's just a case of putting it on the website and what seeing who who stumbles across it and how many people go like look, read the product page and decide, yeah, this is something I'll buy, add that to cart. And then do you treat it as if it was just any purchase? So in, in terms of the way you follow up and maybe interact with those customers, do you treat it as if they just <clears throat> Bought, bought any product that could have been on your website for months? Or do you reach out to people a bit more proactively and really try and get that feedback in? I, I think there will be a bit more aggressive of a request for feedback. We have a we already have a pretty well-developed post-purchase flow and follow-ups and all that. But I think for the new product stuff, we will want to make sure that we ask at least once or twice additionally for that review and for feedback. Yeah, and then we'll and, be able to go through like our existing po reviews, but it, we'll also probably send out a more personalized email that comes from someone on my team saying, "Hey, just informally, would you mind writing two or three sentences about what you do and don't like about the product?" Yeah, and, and with acknowledging the fact that it's a new product and kind of yeah. a soft launch, or yeah, yeah, so you'd, you'd um, still make it clear to the customer that this is new. You're looking for feedback to see see how if it needs to be improved. I think so. I mean, one thing that we already do, we have a Facebook group for customers and prospective customers that's fairly large at this point. We've put a lot of time and money into building that up. And so we do sample all of our products there. The problem with that is that people are getting products for free and they already love us. They or they liked yeah. us enough to sign up for our Facebook group. So the feedback we get there, <clears throat> even when we ask for negative feedback, isn't as honest, I think, as it would be if people had spent their own money on the product. Yeah. So that's why I really want to make sure that we do get the feedback from those actual first customers who paid their own money for it. Yeah. Yeah. I know. Yeah. I know what it's like. I've been doing some customer interviews recently and you kind of get the feeling that maybe people are holding back a little bit at times and maybe they do want to say something negative. Yeah. Well, maybe not negative, but yeah, kind of critical. I do think it helps that I do it as a consultant. So I'm not there. Sometimes there's no one from the brand on the call and people do open up a little bit more. But the, one of the reasons I don't like, I'm not a huge fan of user testing apart from literally does the site work? Does it work as intended? 
is because some of the feedback you get is a bit rubbish and just, oh yeah, I like that. That looks good. I like the way they've done this. And it's just not useful feedback. Yeah. And small sample size too. Totally agree. Yeah. And, I, and like, I think there's a great study to be done about the Amazon buying program where co- companies give discounts or free products in, term, in response review. And then it's labeled on Amazon. This was a, this person received free or discounted product to Amazon buying review. And I'd love to see the distribution of four and five star reviews from that versus standard non discounted products. But I mean, there's no question they're going to be more positive, I think. I've not seen that before. Oh, the Amazon so Vine? It... Really? Yeah. 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 I mean, we, we participate in it. Every, every brand does or should anyway. Okay. It's, so what... it's, it's an Amazon program to help brands see more reviews in the beginning at launch. Oh, okay. So is it like a, a bit of a, like a tag, a bit like the mm-hmm. verified purchase tag? Yeah, it's right there. It also just says basically this person was in, incentivized to leave a yeah. review. Yeah. Yep. Okay, I hadn't seen that. Because I have seen, I've received little inserts within products that say, oh, if you, one that I've had a few times and it is normally from products from China, yeah. is a, if you leave us a review and send a screenshot of that review to this email address, We'll give you a 10 pound Amazon voucher or something. And quite often they'll specify five star review. Yeah. Um, which obviously it's not really allowed. Amazon, like if Amazon finds out, they'll shut the whole company down. Yeah. yeah. But yeah, I, I mean, I had a chat with yeah, a, a guy called George who is ex Amazon actually. And he explained that, yes, yeah, some of the review tactics that have been used ended up shutting down like billions and billions of dollars worth of, of sales from, from stores from China. Yeah, um, sure. from this little like networks are abusing it, but yeah, I mean, just pushing for review is not necessarily bad, particularly if it's just if you can phrase it right and indicate that you are just looking for a review, any review. But obviously, yeah, most of the time, feedback, yeah. yeah, the implication is that you're getting a discount because you're going to leave us a good review. Right. It's only kind of not exactly soft launch with Amazon, but you've done your soft launch. You've decided this is the product. This is working. Is it then kind of all ahead full on Amazon or is there a process to ramping that up there as well? Yeah, I, mean, I think once you've done enough real world testing, gotten enough real world feedback, there's no reason not to go on Amazon and go big, provided it's one of your regular channels, which it is for us. But there's some products which might not do as well on Amazon and some products which we can't sell on Amazon. For example, we're launching one product that can't be fit into a single box. And so you can't sell it Amazon FBA, like their warehousing doesn't do multiple box shipments, I think. So so that'll either have to be fulfilled by merchant or we won't sell it on Amazon. So some like furniture items, things like that. So it it definitely gets a little tricky that way, only because we prefer to be Amazon Prime and FBA. But except for that, I think every other product that seems like it's an amazing, awesome product, yeah. I mean, my our general view is we need to meet the customer wherever they want to shop. That's kind of my core life philosophy on these things. And there's no question, most people want to shop on Amazon. If they want to go see it in person, they'll sell it to Bye Bye Baby and they'll have it in the store and they can go touch and feel it. But I think post-COVID, there are fewer and fewer of those people who really insist on seeing and touching things. Plus, stuff at least bought on our site has a 100-day free trial on on Amazon. It was obviously covered by Amazon's pretty generous returns. So yeah, they just want to meet the customer wherever they want to shop. Yeah. Do you find many people 
purchase on Amazon then come to you direct for something else? A little bit. And we've debated this as a tactic. So our sheets, for example, we debated, should we even sell them on sell, sell them on Amazon or not? Maybe let's kind of, kind of try and get them back to our site. And we also, we sell extra mattress covers and we did the same thing with that. But what we saw is that it didn't really increase penetration that much on our site in terms of subsequent purchases. It's hard to tie that data because you don't really get the Amazon customer data. Yeah. But in terms of looking at additional sales as a percent of the number of mattresses we sell, basically keeping them off Amazon didn't make up for the decline in Amazon sales. Extra covers sold on our site didn't make up for the ones lost on Amazon. Yeah. The fact that they weren't on Amazon wasn't driving people to your website. To, right. To kind of a funny Amazon sale, but this happens to many brands in many categories. But at some point, some word in one of our product descriptions triggered Amazon's bots to think that we were a pesticide. So Amazon just took down <laughs> okay. all of our listings. I don't know how a mattress can be a pesticide, but I think it was something like, I don't know if it was hypoallergenic or antibacterial or the fact that you can wash the core of the mattress inhibits bacteria growth. It was something like that. And so Amazon took down all of our mattresses, which, by the way, were bestsellers in all of their categories. So they didn't care about losing their own revenue and said, you're a pesticide. You cancel pesticides without getting certified by whatever governmental agency. And it took us almost a month to appeal and get the whole thing figured out. And so during that time, sales did go up on our site. But what we saw is that we kind of lost about 15% of those Amazon sales. So that 15% of people won't shop anywhere other than Amazon is what that basically said. Yeah. Which is interesting and a kind of super fascinating data point for us in terms of not only the fact that we need to sell on Amazon if we want to capture that incremental 15%, but also in terms of marketing mix. Like everyone knows there's cross bleed and marketing between off Amazon advertising and on Amazon advertising. Um, but being able to kind of quantify that by accident and in a painful way was really important in terms of infor- informing how we budget. Yeah, but I suppose it's good that you've actually analyzed that as well and realized not just, not just oh, uh, losing Amazon had an impact on sales, we need to get back on it, but really assessing it and understanding that sales were lost. So people were coming to the site. So one way of thinking would be, well, maybe do we need Amazon if people are coming to the site instead? But then also really analyzing it and saying, well, yeah, we did lose 15% of those sales still. So maybe we should stay on Amazon. That is a is an important challenge. Um, yeah, I think brands are always looking at the, do we need to be on Amazon? And various brands from Levi's to Nike have gone back and forth even, I think. Um, and I think it's something that may continue to change over time. But I think it's something that certainly as a D2C first brand, you need to test. Yeah. Just a final thing on, on lifetime value. Do are you... Uh, are all your products physical? Are they all things that have to be bought and shipped? Or do you have any other, I guess, other purchases people can make to boost that lifetime value that may be high margin for the company? Yeah, we're actually about to launch sleep coaching. So that's kind of our first thing. And it's in partnership with another company that specializes in it. But that'll be basically our first non-physical good where there is no shipping or anything else. Yeah, we're, we're, as a brand, we're kind of synonymous with sleep and safe sleep. And so many people do need help in terms of sleep coaching, both for themselves and for their babies. Mm -hmm. And so we've kind of partnered with a very top tier forum 
that works with the top sleep coaches. And so we will be basically selling sleep coaching sessions, but that'll be our first non-physical good launch. And frankly, I'd love to think of some other ones. We've done sleep guides and books and other things like that, but they're just not as core to our mission. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. But yeah, it makes sense. Cool. And are you facing any challenges at the moment? I mean... Apart from like supply, supply chain. In terms of marketing, any big challenges at the moment? Yeah, I mean, for the longest time, we weren't hit by iOS. We managed around it. Nothing really changed in terms of channel mix. I know it's a bit of heresy to say all these things out loud, but the only thing that really changed was your ability to measure really well on Facebook. That largely did go away. But we didn't see that our Facebook ads were any less effective. I mean, an impression on Facebook was still driving people to the site. Um, And that was showing up in our post-purchase analysis. However, over time, we've seen continued declines in the reach of our retargeting on Facebook. And so at this point, figuring out how, if we even want to keep retargeting, CPMs are so high, it kind of doesn't make sense to but making sure how to broaden our reach for retargeting on Facebook and Instagram has been something that over the past two, three months has really started to affect us. So that's one challenge that immediately comes to mind. Another is kind of the declining efficacy of influencers. And we've kind of reached the crossover point where influencer rates have continued skyrocketing, but efficacy is no longer skyrocketing with them. And influencers has always been our, one of our biggest channels and our, one of our top spends. So it's, and I think not, none of this is new for online marketers. Never worked last year is never going to work as well this year. It's constantly, permanently in flux. But those are two challenges that are kind of top of mind in figuring out how to either replace those impressions or create or check out whole new channels to, to better optimize channel mixes. Those are kind of the two that immediately come to mind there. Yeah. And do you do much with A-B testing, conversion rate optimization to try and mitigate some of those problems as well? It's interesting, Rod. I just I just met with an agency last week about it. Historically, we've done quite a bit. We're a little differentiated because we really have this kind of hero product. You can't, we don't sell um, to distributors. Like you can really only buy it from us. And we're agnostic as to where you buy it, whether through our wholesale relationship with Bye Bye Baby or Amazon or a DTC site. So Once we educate the customer on why our product's so different, what we found is that changing the color of a button on our site makes no difference. And that's a bit of an exaggeration, but we've done full site redesigns aimed at CRO and not gotten statistical significance, which is crazy, right? Like we've made our site faster and not gotten statistical significance. And so it certainly could be argued that we haven't tested the right thing. We have seen CRO wins in terms of like some smaller things, like a little micro messaging and urgency, but not in any meaningful ongoing way. And the things that we've tested more often from a conversion rate standpoint have been, do we add a third variant of our mattress or do we add a different color or selling this new product category in a co-branded relationship, does it increase value per visit or not? But in terms of actual conversion rate hacking, we've seen like almost nothing. And again, maybe we're not testing the right things, but we've done full site redesigns. And the the theory is just that once people know how much safer our crib mattress is, they'll wait an extra three seconds for our sites load, or they'll find the variant they want in a drop-down menu versus having a persistent side menu, whatever it is we're testing. And like none of those things. So I'd say of the 
50 AB tests we've run, maybe two have gotten significance. So we, we haven't done a lot historically. I'm open to trying a new, more rigorous program of continuous testing, but we'll see. Yeah, that's interesting. I suppose, yeah, you're right. If if they're convinced on the product, then some of the like usability aspects of the site aren't really going to impact them, right? Yeah, and on the flip side, my last job at Telefloor, I was sending flowers online, which is completely commoditized, unbranded. People do not care. There's no brand loyalty. Every time they go to send flowers, they just Google send flowers cheap today, whatever it is. Yeah. And what we found there was that every A-B test reached significance and there was all kinds of wins to be had. Um, it was very different on a commoditized, nearly unbranded product versus a very branded product, which relates to your baby's safety. Yeah. And so that's the theory. I don't know. Maybe I'm just bad at A-B testing. Cool. So uh, yeah, just before we finish up, is there anyone in the DTC marketing space that you'd want to go for lunch with? Yeah, the, there's one that actually comes to mind right now, the Mudwater. I don't know if you're familiar, but it's basically a mushroom-based coffee substitute. Okay. Mushroom tea. It, it tastes like chai. I, I quit coffee for a while and I I had heard a bunch about it and I really love the product. But they've been able to scale and grow and their ads are awesome. I just saw a YouTube ad that was fantastic. And I think they've done an awesome job of branding, on marketing, on all of it. And so I'd love to kind of meet with them. Tushy is another one, what they've done in the bidet space. Great marketing, great branding. Uh, Again, a a space, and that space in particular, they have all the $30 Chinese manufacturers selling right alongside their $200 one. But they've really done a good job of cutting through that noise and building a brand. And I think that's really hard and impressive. Yeah. So those are are things that come to mind. Yeah. Awesome. Cool. And yeah, last thing, any marketing tools that you'd recommend people, anything you any tools that you really love using or have been really valuable to the company? Yeah. So two that jump out are Amazon tool and those are Helium 10 and Stackline. They're both, Stackline's kind of the enterprise grade, really expensive one. Helium 10 has a free version that I use, but they have an insane amount of data. They show how like literally down to within 5%, how much revenue any given product is driving, competitors, products, whatever you want to look at. So those okay. two for Amazon are fantastic. And then I absolutely love Rockerbox for multi-touch attribution. There's a lot of debate these days about whether or not multi-touch attribution is useful, especially in post-iOS world. And the answer is it's of limited use in channels that are impression-based only, where you can't get an impression pixel. So Snapchat is no use. Facebook they do their best to do kind of implied view-through impressions, but it's impossible to say how accurate that is or isn't, but anything where you have an impression pixel, so display ads or podcast or um, programmatic audio, even linear TV channels like that, we find it invaluable and we use it extensively down to the kind of ad level, not even ad set, but down to the ad level. So yeah, I absolutely love Rockerbox. It's way cheaper than a lot of the enterprise grade multi-touch attributions and we'll continue to use it. Awesome. Cool. Well, it's been really interesting, really great stuff. If anyone wants to reach out and find out more, what's the best way of doing that? LinkedIn. LinkedIn's always the best for me. Yeah. I think that's probably how we've gotten in touch too. Yeah. Yeah, I think it is. Yeah. Yeah. I get too many emails, so I do not give out my email address. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. Fair <laughs> enough. Deal with that. But kudos <laughs> to those billionaires who give out their email addresses. I don't know how they do it. It's because they don't read it. They've got a VA, haven't they? Or a personal oh, yeah, assistant. a whole team reading it to see which one. Uh, yeah. <laughs> cool. Great stuff. Thanks so much, Aaron. Yeah, great talking to you. Thanks. As Aaron mentioned, it's so important to not rush new products to market, although it can be tempting. 
At Newton Baby, they focus on soft launches to their existing customer base to gauge reaction to these products and get feedback, right? Which helps them iron out any wrinkles with the product and launch that product fully later. With Amazon, this is particularly important as it's crucial to get a really good, strong rating on your Amazon listing as quickly as possible. If you launch the product straight away on Amazon, there's a big risk that something might go wrong. There might just be something about the product that people don't like, and this could really damage your presence there. If you'd like to hear more from Aaron, you can reach out to her on LinkedIn. Any other podcast questions, feedback, or guest requests, please send them over to will at customerswhoclick.com or DM me on LinkedIn. Next up, I've got Naveen Jain joining me from Clavio, and we're going to be talking about how brands can integrate SMS into their marketing automation and some of the big mistakes to avoid. But until then, keep those customers clicking. Thank you.